Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the uh, glories of spring to remind us yet again, Lord, um, that death will not prevail against us, that the enemies uh, of your throne, your crown, will not prevail against you. You are the eternal spring. You are the one who gives life. And we pray, Lord, that as we come and open your word now, that we would feast and that we would be filled with life, that we would go from here, Lord, and that, we would be, uh, that our hearts would be streams of living water. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and amen. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're actually going to be looking at verses 13 through 23. 1 Samuel 16, 13 through 23. And as uh, we could tell last week, what we've done now is we've turned finally to David. This Samuel series has been going on for a while now. We've gotten a good look at Samuel. We've gotten a good look at the prophetic voice about how God is working through worship and godly families and marriage and raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and the worship of his people. And now we come to David. Now we come to the first of many sermons as to why I wanted to do this series. <laughs> uh, nine years, nine months ago, exactly, I, I preached my very first sermon, and it was on the purpose of music. Um, it was the first sermon I ever preached. And, and this is a subject, what we're going to look at today is music, spiritual power chords, so to speak. Uh, I, love, I love me some music, and I think that it, it is a tool that is available to us that we do not use nearly enough. Before we see David as a warrior, before we see him as a king, before we see him on the battlefield slaying the enemies that he can see, we see him as a spiritual exorcist, as a musician slaying the enemies of God that we cannot see. And I think it's extraordinarily important to get this part right. Before he ever goes out on a battlefield and kills a giant, he is summoned to the throne room of Israel, and he there is slaying spirits with what is essentially an ancient guitar. Now, I, I believe that he also sang, as we can tell from the book of Psalms. I highly doubt that David ever just played instrumental music. I, do, I don't think he could bring himself to do it. So he played, and he sang, and by doing so, he drove out spirits. He drove out evil spirits. He subdued evil spirits. And the reason for this is found simply in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, does anyone here have a rock big enough to throw at one of Satan's minions and hit him? Anybody? A bow and arrow? Jared, do you have a gun big enough to shoot? No? No. What is it that we lob at them? Melodies. We lob at them spiritual empowered chords. This is David's primary weapon. Now, what I find fascinating about this is this, this is exactly how God is. This is what God does. And, and there are sections in the Bible that we think are poetic that are not poetic. There are lots of sections where we think it's hyperbole. We think it's, it's sort of a beautiful way of describing God, and it's like a nice picture. But we don't realize how real it really is. And, and this is a, a, some verses from Isaiah, chapter 30, verses 29 to 32. This is, this is why David is called a man after God's own heart, one of the many reasons. But this is what it says in Isaiah, chapter 30, verses 29 to 32. It says, You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept. And gladness of heart as when one sets out to, be, to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire. With a cloudburst and storm and hailstones, the Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. And many of us think, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? Like, he's going to hit them so hard with his rod of iron and their steel helmets, it's going to sound like cymbals. Well, no. Right? Uh, he has a soundtrack. He has a soundtrack while he's whooping up on the enemies of his throne. And that soundtrack is his own voice. And what he wants the people of he wants his people to understand is that we are to join in that soundtrack. We are to lift up our voices. We are to lift up 
our musical abilities and join in this song as he slays his enemies. Right? And so, so many of us in the New Testament are confused. Right? Do we slay, like, is, are we looking at Saul and Agag and the Amalekites because Mike is now going to hand out AR-15s and we're going to go down and start slaying people? No. <laughs> right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Okay? We are the mature church. We are the church militant, and we fight with pure weapons of spirit. He said, God said, Jesus said, you will worship me in spirit and truth. You will go forth truly armed, and you won't need swords because what you will have are songs. You will not need swords because what you'll have are backbeats, guitars, and tambourines. And Joel anticipated me a little bit because as I was preparing this, I actually thought of my favorite passage from Lord of the Rings, which I have here. (laughs) And I'm now going to read this short passage because this, thinking about God this way, I, I was reminded of this. And Tolkien understood the God that he served. This is what it says. Now, just briefly... For those of you who don't know, the house of Rohan has come to the aid of Gondor. They're on horses. They're charging down a hill, and they're about to slay the armies of Mordor before Gondor. I'm sure if, if, if well, actually, if you've never read this book or watched the movies, come see me afterwards. We have other, <laughs> there are other issues in your life we have to address. But I'm not going to go into huge detail. Just listen to this. Listen to this. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. And then all the hosts of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. And let it be so for the people of God. Tolkien Tolkien knew what he was talking about. Through spiritual power cords, we are set free from evil spirits. We tear down strongholds. We ambush the enemy, and we delight in our Lord. The weapons of our warfare must include psalters and hymnals and instruments. The enemy trembles when we sing and when we make melody, and is beyond delighted that this has become something that we we do so little the enemy loves the fact that we don't sing because why because when we sing you can hear over it the thud of the rod of iron on the helmets of the enemy the enemy delights in the fact that modern people uh, modern christians think so little of music in their everyday lives have you ever thought why do we come here and, and the majority of what we do in a service is actually singing And not me singing, you're singing. Why is that? Why do you do that? We must come to understand and delight in this weapon if we are to reform the church and our country. I don't want to be too drastic with this statement. But if we want to reform the church, if we want to reform this country, I don't really see how it's going to happen unless music becomes the central means of our self-expression, unless music becomes one of our central weapons. There's some other good we could do, but not much, unless we restore music to its proper place. So with all of that in mind, now let, let's go and look at, at the story of David and his life and his life as a musician and exactly how it worked um, and, and in order to then go and imitate it, because that's the point of this whole thing. We have to live like David, be like David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, <laughs> this presents me with a great deal of trouble before I get to the thing I want to talk about, which is music. Because, I'm sorry, did that just say that not only is there an evil spirit, but there is an evil spirit sent by God <laughs> upon his own son. Now, most of us understand that evil is, is a problem, right? The problem of evil is this philosophical, theological thing we deal with. How could a good God let bad things happen? But it's actually worse than people think. The problem of evil is a bigger problem than people realize because not only is it that there is this God and there just happens to be evil, there is a God and he sends evil spirits upon people who were his children. Now, I'm just going to let you think about that for a moment. Because what I find is, is this ties people in knots trying to figure this out. And, I, and I, think, um, I think for all the wrong reasons. 
Is evil a problem for God? Right? The, the, <laughs> why would he create creatures that could choose him or not? Why would he do that? What's the point? Right? We tend to think that what really God wants is heaven. That's really what he wants. He wants this place where there's no tears. He wants this place where there's no pain. He wants this place where there's no death. And my question is, if that's really all he wanted, why didn't he just make that? He could have. Why did he choose this story? Why, did he, why is he telling the story he's telling the way he's telling it? Is this a problem for him, or is it simply a problem for us? The anointing ceremony is not mere symbolism. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, just as it had in Saul in chapter 10, verse 10. What is more, it stayed with him from that day on, making David's anointing superior to Saul's and an image of New Testament, what, what it means in the New Testament to have the Holy Spirit. When the, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the children of God now in Christ, if you are in Christ, the Spirit is in you. And, and we see it in the life of David. The, the Spirit came upon him and did not depart. Concurrently, the Spirit of God departs from Saul, leaving him terrified and anxious and paranoid. Saul persisted in his rebellion, grieving the Spirit of God, driving the Spirit of God out of himself. Saul still had a spirit from the Lord, but instead of the, of the Spirit of Yahweh, it was an evil spirit who brought only anguish to him. Now, the Hebrew word translated evil has a wide range of meanings, and this is one of those times where, frankly, the translators are just being lazy. Evil has connotation, I, I think, that, does not, that misses the mark for what's being said here. Moral perverseness, or a spirit of misery, a spirit of unhappiness, a spirit of dissolution, a spirit of anguish. All of those things, I think, would make more sense to us, and that's how the word couldn't be translated. I think an evil spirit, like he sends a morally corrupt spirit upon him, just doesn't make as much sense as he sends a troubler upon him. He gives him a spirit of anxiety and fear and depression. Saul's tortured state was not an accident. It is not merely a medical condition, because a lot of commentators, well, he just had schizophrenia, and then that, that's how moderns want to explain away what's happened. The astounding declaration of verses 14 and 15 reflects a truth that bears further examination. God, the creator of the universe, had given the law to Israel, and he's told them, he said, here is the law, here is the Torah, here is the path of life. If you stay on this path, if you stay obedient to the Lord... The result will be life and blessing. He was quite clear. Go and read Deuteronomy. He's quite clear. Stay on this path, and what you will have is life and blessing. And he says simultaneously, if you leave it, you will have what? Judgment and pain and difficulty and the absence of blessing. To disobey, disobey Torah was to leave the path of life for the path of judgment and death. Now, and this is what confuses a lot of us. Because as we have we watched the story of Saul, has it been that he occasionally slips up? Is it, is it occasionally that he just doesn't really know what he's doing and he sins, so then he repents? And, and, and you know, he really is a swell guy. He's just trying to, trying to do his bit. You know, life is rough. Is that how we would describe Saul? Or is he a high-handed sinner who rejects God again and again and again and again and again? Well, if you've been here for the series, what we see is that Saul isn't just a guy who slipped up one time and so God kicks him out of the kingdom. He is a man on a path. He's chosen a way of life. And that way of life is to deny that God is his king and that he owes any allegiance or obedience to him. Now, we have to make a very important distinction here. Okay, the origin of suffering baffles us. We do not think that it originates in God. We want to somehow create a system where everything relies upon him except wicked and evil. Now, what I want to be very clear about is that God never in heaven decides to do something evil. He's not the author of evil in the sense that he devises it. He created a world where it's possible. Now, is he in control of that world? Do we want to find fault with him for making it possible for me to lose my arm in a car accident? Do we want to make it, right, or do we, why would he make a world where I could possibly have cancer, where I could lose a child? Why would he make this world? This, we, it, we really struggle with this. And so we create kind of these weird theologies that sort of excuse it away and make it not of his doing, as if there's any forces in this world that are apart from, uh, that live outside of his will, that exist outside of his will. John chapter 9, verse 3. 
John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's going to heal a blind man. And he states very emphatically that it is, it is not because of sin that he is blind. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought things like blindness didn't exist before the fall. I thought, you know, sin caused the fall, which caused illnesses, which caused right, our sinning natures. I thought that all of it was the result of the fall. And here Jesus is saying that this man's blindness is not because of sin. It's, it was given to him so that God might be glorified in him. Now think about that. He is not safe. He is good, but he is not safe. Right? We think God is someone other than he is. Why would he make a man blind to glorify himself? And for many of us, that is a difficult thing to hear. And, right? and, and with the apostles, we say, man, this is hard. This is a hard thing you're saying. And I don't know if I want to stick around and listen to it. We have to deal with this. God gave him the blindness. At Lazarus' illness and death, Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 4, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus' friend dies, and the purpose, right? Can you imagine? His father kills his friend. His father brings death to his friend. And Jesus hears that his friend is dead, and he says, this is to glorify God and to glorify me. And we know that this conspiracy of life, this, this is part of the big conspiracy of life. He brings Lazarus back to life, and that was the impetus by which now the forces of darkness rally around him and put Jesus to death. And so he knows. And where did it come from in his life? And does Jesus ever stand there and say, how dare you, Dad? How dare you do such a thing to me? And he was perfect. If anybody <laughs> could have been like, man, ah, shucks, you've given me a bad rap, God. Don't you think it could have been Jesus to say that? Because what did he ever do that was bad? Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Do you want, Okay, we all want to find out who's to blame for the tents downtown. Right? Who is it? Is it, is it the city council's fault? Is it the governor's fault? Is it all those libs, those stupid Democrats? I'm going to suggest something to you that I would like you to go away and deal with. God did it. God did it. Why is there trouble in this city? Because God brought it to this city. <laughs> why is there trouble in Washington? Because God brought it. Right? Why, why is Russia rattling its saber at us and, and, and threatening to go to war with us? Because God is bringing trouble to us. And what we have to deal with is that fact. Now, there are human agents through which, who are making their own decisions, there's a primary cause and a secondary cause to everything that happens, and we can get super philosophical about this, and I can draw these diagrams that confuse everyone, including myself, but what we really have to get down to at the end of the day is that it's God brings the trouble. God brings the trouble. Here's a lengthy passage from Job. <laughs> this should comfort us a great deal. It should also trouble us a great deal. Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Right, like roll call? What is <laughs> The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here's my question. Whose hand is against Job at this moment? Satan said, if you raise your hand against him, he will curse you. God says, okay, Satan, go after him. So who's the one behind it? You see primary and secondary agents. But who's the, <laughs> who's the one having a roll call and everybody who shows up who was created by God, the sons of God, are, are the, um, the angels. The angels come before God and there's the roll call and amongst them is Satan. Now, 
wait, I thought, how does, how does this work? Wouldn't God be like, wow, I've been looking for you everywhere. I'm hanging you from a tree and get rid of evil. Right? That's, in my own mind, that's what I'd be like. Well, when I read the story, I'm like, well, God, he's right there. I feel like I'm watching one of those Mickey Mouse Clubhouse ones, you know, where they're looking for the hammer. Where's the hammer? Oh, it's right there on the table, Mickey. When I read this story, I'm like, he's right there. Get him. <laughs> and God's like, hey, you know what? Have you considered my most, my most faithful child? Now, imagine later, God, the Father's in heaven, and there he's having a council. And Satan shows up for roll call, and God says, hey, um, have you noticed my son Jesus? Have you seen him lately? Woo, wise, man. He just got baptized, too. You should have at him. In fact, the only reason Satan does have at him is because God gave him permission and said, you will go this far and no further. And what does Jesus always say? Nobody takes anything from me. When we hand over this life, when we hand over this ministry, when we hand over this breath in my lungs, it's because we decide to hand it over and no one will take it from me. (laughs) And so we think, oh, there are things outside of God's control. I don't think so. I don't think so. It's true in the scriptures. Nothing is outside of his control. Now, the reason, again, is found in Job. Job is a book that we should memorize, all of us, collectively. Job chapter 5, verse 7, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. God told Adam in his very good world, guard the garden. Well, if everything in the world is very good, guard it from what? Jesus kneels down He prays that God would give him some other way to save mankind, and it turns out there is no other way but a great deal of trouble. Because why? Because you were born for trouble. You were born for trouble. How else are people sanctified? If there's no trouble, will you ever be sanctified? If there's no trouble, what's the story? There's no story. You take out your favorite, whatever your favorite story is, and you take out the trouble in it. What, What do you have? Nothing. Right? When everything's Everything is good and everything is perfect and there's no trouble. It's just a white noise that God hates. Now, why did he do it this way? Why did he do it this way? I'm not going to answer the question. <laughs> this is one of those times I got, I got to talk about music. So I'm going to just leave this with you guys. Why did he do it this way? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10. I'll give you a little hint here. This is from Paul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly for my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Job himself said it. Should we take only good things from the hand of the Lord, or should we not also take bad things from the hand of the Lord? Because he's God and we're not. Can you imagine? Look at all these things pouring down out of heaven. I'll take all the good things, fill my basket with good, but we're going to leave the basket of empty, or the basket of bad empty. And God be like, I really don't have anything for you. We are given thorns in our flesh. We are given trouble. Why? So that we will not be conceited. So that we will become more Christ-like. So that we will lean into God. Now. I want to make it, again, we have to be very clear. Every person that I've talked about thus far are sons of God. Job is a son of God who remains to the end. Jesus is a son of God who remains to the end. So what is going on with Saul then? Well, it's not the first time that the the spirit had departed from a person. In Judges chapter 16, we read of Delilah and Samson. Delilah made Samson sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him slay... Uh, shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The reason he was able to shake them free is because the Lord was upon him. And now the Lord is not with him. And what do they do? 
They take his eyes from him, and they put, them, put him in prison. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There is a distinction between the trouble that comes, godly trouble that comes to us because we're sons, because we're being disciplined, because we're being sanctified, and the kind of trouble that comes to people who have tasted the grace of God and has spit it out. And our theology requires having these categories because the world doesn't make any sense otherwise. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have once tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's Saul. He has nothing but contempt from God. Now, at this point, if I was in his court, I would be praying hard for him because I don't know what's happening other than I can see that he's rejecting God. Right? This is, I always tell my kids, you've got to be careful between the snapshot and the video. You take snapshots of people, and you think, oh, that defines them. Look at these, this photo album. Look, I caught them. They were, they were angry because their Starbucks drink was taking too long, or they're yelling at their kids, or they're stealing a candy bar. If we take photos of people all over their lives, you can tell a story about them that may or may not actually be true. And God in heaven is watching the video. So if I was in Saul's court, I'd be like, man, we need to pray hard for him because there's still hope. But God gives us, he, he tells us the whole story so that when we go into our, into our lives, we are not confused. We're going to go on and see that Saul never turns back from the way of death. He had tasted of the heavenly glories. He was the king of Israel, for goodness sakes. His responsibility was, the, was greater. Therefore, when he rejects God, he's rejected all the greater. It's terrible what happens to Saul? And what we can't do now is go out and be like, well, I, I'm not going to pray for so-and-so anymore because he's like Saul. <laughs> he tasted the heavenly glories and he's gone out. Well, you don't know the video. Okay, so this is where we have to be very careful. But the bottom line issue that we have to deal with, the larger struggle of our hearts, is that God is utterly and completely and purely all the way, there's nowhere where he's not, sovereign over everything that happens. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 6 and 7. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We have to make distinctions between the disciplining trouble of sons and the judgment of those who reject Jesus. Trouble is given to us as a thorn like Paul's to get us to rely less on ourselves and more on the Lord. Remember, a few weeks ago on Easter, all the enemies, the the enemy of God now, all the weapons they have against us give us more what? When we die now, we go immediately right now to the presence of God. So the worst possible thing the enemy can do is send us straight to Jesus. And you work your way down, all of the enemy's weapons, all of them now, simply give us more Jesus. It's crucial that we understand that. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. It says this, Let our Lord, these are now Saul's attendants speaking to Saul, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to the servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Though Saul was the one being troubled by the spirit, he is incapable of self-diagnosing. It's his attendants who have to tell him what's going on, because he's spiritually dead. He has no idea what's happening to him. This evil spirit has come upon him, or the spirit of God used to be upon him, and he, just, he doesn't know what's happening. Other people have to tell him. He's blind to it. Music was known in Israel, Israelite circles to have power in the spiritual world. They understood, some people in Israel understood, that God has power over the spirits, and one of the ways he uses to control them is music. 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. And Elisha said, Now bring me a musician. 
And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. So the mediating force in, in this story, right, the thing that brings the, the knowledge of God to, this, to Elisha is music. It's a musician playing music. That's how the prophet receives the prophecy. The musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. And he has this revelation because a musician is playing. The scriptural power of chords was well known in ancient Israel amongst God's people and must be restored again to to us. We must take up this weapon. Like Saul, we must send for the remedy. Saul's like, okay, this is a great idea. Go get the guy, bring him here, let's play. When we go from here, what we need to do is send for the cure for what ails us. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 19 through 22. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. No one appeared before the king empty-handed. Remember? Remember? Saul, uh, Samuel said, The king will take from you. He will take your sons. He will take your, he will take your food. And so <laughs> he calls for David, and everybody understands, Well, you don't just go up to see the king with nothing, because he's the king. He takes stuff. So here, Jesse sends him laden with all of these gifts. David is not only Yahweh's choice. What's fascinating here is that he's also Saul's choice. Now, I talked about first and secondary causes, and, and this should just baffle us even more. Not only does God choose David, God sovereignly dictates, right? He sovereignly, providentially creates a situation and where Saul would pick him too, of his own free will. God ordained before heaven... Later today, you will go to your fridge, and you will open it, and you will take out a particular, right? You'll have five beers there. You'll pick one. And you think, man, it's hot. It's the Sabbath. I'm going to drink one of these. And you freely choose it. And what's amazing is that before time, God ordained that on this day, at that moment, you would freely choose that beer. Now, I cannot possibly explain how that works. (laughs) I I remember years ago when I was teaching this to high school kids, and they were like, well, just, but How? (laughs) <laughs> like, you got the lines, there's the primary cause, and there's the secondary cause, and you have a line going between the two, but what's the line that connects them? I have no idea. Right? God is not us. How does, he, how, does he, right? how does he decide everything that's going to happen and then create people who freely choose the same thing he's chosen? Well, I don't know, but isn't it staggering? And isn't it in some way comforting? Also slightly troubling. All of the above. But again, I have to get on to the music. So I, I just, if you need some books on this subject, I will loan you some. Or buy them for you, even. Just as Yahweh says he had provided for himself a king among Jesse's sons in verse 1, so Saul requests his servant to provide for him an expert on the lyre in verse 17. And you see these, the, the two wills interlining. The wisdom of the choice is immediately recognized as Saul takes David, and David succeeds because the Lord is with him. 1 Samuel 16.23, And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, Puritan increased Mather, he observed, he was, a, he was a minister, and he wrote this, right, and this is in the 17th century, Music is of great efficacy against melancholy, and the sweetness and delightfulness of music has a natural power to overcome melancholy passions. This is a well-established fact. The secular world is increasingly aware of this. Now, if you're ever going to look at studies, scientific studies, and you want to know how valid they are or not, there's something that you can like called meta-analysis. And I learned this when I was studying criminology in college. So you don't just take a study. You take a meta-analysis, which takes a whole bunch of studies and takes all of the data from all kinds of different things and lumps them all together. I find that they're way more accurate because what you're doing is you're collecting data from all kinds of things, all kinds of different times and different studies in different places. So a meta-analysis was done, 35 studies spanning from 1995 to 2012 were compiled into uh, one large study on the medical efficacy of music. This comprehensive summary of study results demonstrated that music therapy treatment improved the following, 
global and social functioning in schizophrenia and other serious mental disorders, in gait and related activities in Parkinson's disease, depressive symptoms, sleep quality. Those who practice music therapy are finding a benefit in using music to help cancer patients. Hospitals are beginning to use music and music therapy to help with pain management, to help ward off depression, to promote movement in speech therapy, to calm patients during and after operation, to ease muscle tension. We are discovering that listening to music activates every portion of your brain. When you're listening to music, all the portions of your brain, when they, they put you in those little machines, sorry, I don't know what they're called, and they, they like see the activity in your mind when you're listening to music, every area, your emotions, your motive skills, um, your memory, everything lights up. This is why you, in speech therapy, uh, Gabbard was a congresswoman. She was shot several years ago, and she couldn't say the word sunshine. They were getting to this point in her therapy that she couldn't say sunshine, so they started to sing a, a children's melody that had the word sunshine in it, and she was able to learn how to say sunshine. Now, this is the secular world that's figuring this out because the God, this is the world that God made, and you can measure it, and you can study it, and you can see there is power in music. How much more in spirit-empowered music? If, if you can just play music and heal somebody's brain, what can you do for the soul of someone when you're playing spirit-empowered music to them? Well, what we can see in David and Saul is that it actually drives out evil spirits. It controls them. God is, can control the spirit world. It's not outside of his control. And the whip that he's put in the hand of man to keep him back is music. David's musical efforts were effective in providing relief for Saul, but the writer understands it. He says, the Lord was with him. They're, they're spirit-empowered chords. They're not just chords. The power of music over the mind and the emotions, as well as over the spiritual realm, is why music and song were at the heart of the temple worship in Israel. Okay, now I'm going to... Music was, some, was not something that they just had occasionally in Israel. It, was, it made up not only all of their temple worship, but their everyday lives. Now, I'm, and I'm going to look at passages because we need to understand, music is not something that we ought to simply do on Sundays. It, it isn't. It can't be. If, if we really want to go out and do what we feel like we're called to do in our homes and in the culture, we can't simply have a few, five songs on Sunday. And I understand, I understand. The way that music culture is now, why would I learn to play the violin in my drawing room as they would in a Jane Austen novel to entertain my guests, when I can simply say, sorry, play piano, guys. Right? Now, I understand how hard this is, but I want to make a biblical case for it. Music ought to be a larger part of all of our lives. First Chronicles chapter 15, verses 15 to 16. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. Second Chronicles 29, 25. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. So you guys want to go and worship? Well, what you need to do is make music. Because when you make music, that sound that you hear isn't a cymbal. It's my rod of iron off the, <laughs> off the steel helmet of the enemy. Music was present in, in, throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 31:27, Laban scolds Jacob this way. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? Lyre, sorry. I was working so hard on that word this week. Lyre, not lyre. And this is what's important. When is the last time your spouse was going on a business trip and you stood at the door and you sang the doxology? Now I, now, I remember this. I remember reading this years ago. And, we, and when we go on family vacations, the first thing we do is we pray and we sing. Because when people are departing, you ought to sing. And when um, the, the son who runs away from his father and spends all of his money and he's in the pig trough and he comes back, what's the first thing he hears? So when people go and come on trips, you ought to play music for them. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 34. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Now, do you want to know why America is a wasteland? 
There's lots of reasons you could tell, but let me give you one example. When is the last time you were at a wedding where the, the bride and the groom sang together? Now, book of Jeremiah, he says, I shall silence the cities of Judah. He's going to give them judgment. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to take the songs away from their weddings. When is the last time you were at a wedding and the bride and the, bride and the groom were up there singing? Or that you sang a song as they left, right? What has music become to most of us? Because we're modern Americans, because we're modern Westerners, what is music? It's this thing we play in the background, right? We've all been to weddings where they play a song when they leave. But when's the last time, right? David Young, that's him. Most of you know him. He used to go to this church. Of course, it's David Young. We all sang together as he and his bride um, climbed into the car and went off to wedded bliss, And I remember, he was like, well, I mean, I don't want my marriage to be cursed. (laughs) We had read for us today, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3 through 24. And what what went before the army of God? This was the point I made nine years ago. I love military history. Generally, if you really want to do well in a battle, what you put in front are tanks, right? And then you put the infantry behind them, and you have some artillery off to the side, that seemed like a pretty f- effective way. How many of us would be like, you know what needs to go out in front of us are trumpets and choirs? That's not how we think, right? And when we go to battle as the people of God, when we're the church militant and we're going to go and do some good, what do we do? Oh, we want street preaching. What about street singing? Why is it always preaching? Preaching is like the only thing we think we've got. Well, how about we go down to the Planned Parenthood and just stand there and sing songs? This role of music and song was continued in the early church, both in everyday life and in worship itself. Now, what's fascinating is if if you go into the New Testament, all kinds of portions of the New Testament are actually songs that they just recorded. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, John 1, 1 through 17. These are just a few examples. A large portion of the New Testament, larger than any of us would really think, are actually recorded hymns, especially when you get to the epistles. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So Johnny Cash knew a little something about the way God likes to work. Let's go to Folsom Prison and make some songs. Right? And I remember that that's what he said. He's like, I don't... Everyone was like, you're going to go and record an album in a prison? And he was like, well, I'm a Christian, and there's no other place. Right? And this is what you see. There's something to it. Paul is put in prison, and he's entertaining the people who are in there by singing to them. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 21. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Do you want to be wise? Want to be wise? Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence of him. Now, what do we learn from this? Speaking songs. You're singing songs to one another. Why? Because when you're here and you're singing, who's supposed to be listening to it? Have you ever thought about that? Here we all are staring at this blank wall. Who are we singing to? You're singing to each other. Well, why? Because like David, you're driving the evil spirits out of one another's hearts. Paul says you're addressing one another. That's who you're addressing. I hear you singing. You hear me singing. I hear um, someone singing across the aisle. I won't say who. Uh, you You hear them singing across the aisle, and you're hearing it. You're being addressed with the biblical truth. Singing arises in this passage from the heart, implying both that it is sincere and not superficial. It is to the Lord also that we are singing, which fortifies the truly spiritual nature of the song. Singers are not, no longer idolatrous grumblers, as in Romans 1, but are giving thanks to the Father through the songs. The words always and for everything are comprehensive and indicate a way of life, not just the experience of a moment. This amplifies the meaning of being filled with the Spirit. God does not want you to gather together once a week and sing five songs and think that you're truly fighting the spirits of this world, the principalities and powers of the air. 
He wants what you do here on Sunday to be a way of life, right? So when we go in our own homes, what do we do? We read the word of God. We pray. That part we got. We're like, okay, we all know that. But are you singing in your homes? Are you singing? Or do you sing at, when you're sitting down at the dinner table? Do you sing when you're going on a journey? Do you sing when someone comes home from a journey? Do you sing because it's the warfare? When you hear something glorious has happened, Dad got a promotion. Let's sit down and let's get the hymnals out and let's sing. This is not how we think about things, I know. But should it be? That's the case I'm trying to make. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Why? Because he's driven the spirits out of your life. He's pushing back the enemy so that you could move forward in your Christian walk. Now, don't you want to join him? Right? We want to be holy like he's holy. We want to be perfect like he's perfect. We, we want to forgive as he forgives. We want to love like he loves. Do we want to sing like he sings? At every point in the history of the church, when, when Reformation really began, one of the hallmarks of it was singing. I, I'm not going to read. I have, 20 pass, I have like 20 passages here. I'm not going to read them all. But Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, they thought, you know what we need to do is build the kingdom of God. What we need to do is drive back the enemy. What we need to do is glorify the Lord. What we need to do is fight the enemies of God. Therefore, lift up your voices. And if you want to do something for the kingdom, if you think you're going to go out and reform it and it's not going to include music, you've got to see, we have a serious, serious problem. Now, I'm going <laughs> to... Now, some of you have heard me sing. Does God care about the sound of my voice? Do you think he cares? Right? I wanna, why don't we do more of this? Well, one, we don't know. We don't know how to sing. Anybody here besides myself? Right? Here, I'll, I'll get you some sheet music. Anybody read it? I can't read it. I even spent, spent three years in Bel Canto Choir. I still can't read it. My teacher, poor Mr. Cox. I was like a stubborn man. He's like, it's an A. It's an A. Please, it's just an A. Hard-hearted. It's, it's a language I don't understand. It's like studying Greek. So I'm with you. It's hard. I don't know. I just bought a pitch pipe. Do you know why? Because I, I'm the leader of my home, and I ought to lead singing. And, I, and, and we open the book, and I'm like, I don't even know what this is. This is a G. Is this a C? I don't know, E flat? I'm not sure, but I'm going to just blow on this little pipe. And we'll, just, we'll sing that note. You know why? God doesn't care. He doesn't care. But, but this, this is what's happened to us. We, we, because of the professionalization and mass pr- production and d- dissemination of music, we leave music to the professionals. We do. I mean, like I said, again, why would I, I was think, thinking recently about learning how to play the piano, and that lasted two days. You know why? Because I can go on and listen to Harry Connick. Harry Connick knows a thing or two about the piano. Same, I was like, okay, well, I'll do the mandolin. I kind of miss the mandolin. I want to play the mandolin. I was like, yeah, but Chris Teal. Why would I ever learn when I can just listen to Chris Teal wherever I go? And so this is one reason why we don't. And isn't that a very clever trick of the enemy? Isn't that a very clever trick? Let's just take this weapon right out of their hands by providing them constantly with music in their cars and music on their phones and music, right? When's the last time you were watching a TV show and there wasn't music behind it? We're inundated all the time with music, and it's never our music. Why? Because the enemy knows exactly what's going to start happening when we start singing, when we start making melody. And you don't know? Learn. Right? I, here, this is, where, this is where we'll start. We'll start where I like to start. Whenever I think I don't have enough time for something, I get one of those apps on my phone that keeps track of all how I spend my time. And then at the end of the week, I can see exactly how long I was playing Xbox. It's always shaming. Like, I could have learned Mandarin in that amount of time. You get your phone, and you're like, man, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. And you think, well, here's what I'm going to do. is I'm going to take Instagram out. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to iTunes, and I'm going to look up some of the songs that we know because Joel provides us with an immense number of lists. We should not, it should not be a mystery to us exactly what it is we sing when we're here. And I'm going to go find those songs, and because I sing to them on Sunday, I'm going to start singing to them in my own home. And, my, and your neighbors would be like, what is going on over there, a church service? Right? I usually, <laughs> you're like, yes, amen. You're ambushed. Right? There, there are all kinds of resources. There's one called um, Sing Your Part. 
And they have the Cantus Christi and uh, a number of CRC churches in our denomination post the songs they're going to sing so their people can practice all week long and get ready for Sunday so that when they offer it up to the Lord on Sunday, what they're offering is not something that they're rehearsing while they're doing it. Because that's often what we're doing. We're rehearsing while we're singing. How much more effective would our services be? How much more effective, right, in our own homes? I'll ask you this. Is there anyone in your home that's anxious? There's, there's a pastor friend of mine. He's been a pastor 30 years now. And, and he says he doesn't wait. He gets up and he sings two to five psalms every morning. Because what it does is it can, right? We know prayer does it. We know reading the scriptures do it. But he sings because it completely changes his attitude. As we see in the word of God here, not here, here. This is what God intended for music to do. Is your wife anxious? Is your husband anxious? Are your children anxious? Is there a spirit in your home that is, <laughs> has come into your home primarily through your kids playing too much Halo? We're kind of experiencing that right now. <laughs> Everything turns into Halo. Do you need to drive those spirits out? Are there spirits in your, in your community that you need to drive out? Learn how to sing. Sing. Most of us can. So what? we need to start doing it. In an age where things like singing and playing in the home has diminished, we need to bring it back. Take up as we, so, sorry, as we take up the sword of the Spirit, if we want to fight like God does, we need to do it with a soundtrack. As we, as we start in Isaiah, God fights his enemies with a soundtrack. He's like, ooh, this is my jam. This is my jam. My song's on. Now I'm going to go out there and those Assyrians, they're going to be hiding under rocks when I'm done with them. Right? He likes a nice backbeat when he's thumping his enemies. He does. And this is what he wants us to be like. We see enemies all around, don't we? We're kind of surrounded, especially here. There are giants and dragons in the land. And we think, okay, what we need to do is get five smooth stones and head out to the battlefield and take down Leviathan. We've got to go out there. We've got to slay dragons and kill giants. We've got to do it. Let's do it. And, and what we need to look at David and see, the, before he was out there hurling rocks, before he was out there swinging the sword, he was, he was singing. And he was delivering people from darkness. And this is what God has intended for us. And they fear it. And we have forgotten it. So let us remember. and Let us repent of this in our own homes. Let us cry out to the great physician for this medicine. Just like Saul is like, yes, Lord God, please give me this medicine. My soul needs it. My wife needs it. My children need it. Our community needs it. Give us this medicine. Right? Because how many of us are going to go from here and just, oh, I need a new habit? Done. That's, we're all here because that's not how it works. Cry out to God that he would give you this medicine, that he would give your communities this medicine. The Lord will go to work on your enemies, and he will do it with a rod of iron, and behind him all along will be your voice. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for... Um, the ministry of David and Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, that even now you stand over us with joy in your heart singing. I pray, God, that we would lift our voices to you. I pray, God, that you would deliver us from darkness, that you would deliver us from our own laziness and and incomprehension, that we would take up the weapon of music and that we would delight in you in song, that we would make a joyous melody, and that that you would go before us and with our songs in the background, that you would destroy our enemies. And amen.